Andrew Womack Ministries presents this message titled, 1 John 1, 9. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. Let's turn over to John chapter 16. I've talked to a couple of people this morning who, uh, this is their first service. They've missed the uh, previous services. I've been teaching in a sequence and I tell you, there is no way that I can go back and summarize what we've talked about. I've covered some, I've covered a lot of material. I've covered some radical things that are just nearly opposite what is being taught in a lot of Christianity today. And uh, so anyway, if you've missed any of this, please go back and get the CDs and DVDs. We already have the three previous services uh, duplicated there out here. This morning service will be available within 10 or 15 minutes after the morning service and you can go get those. But in John chapter 16, let me just go back and read some of the verses that we've been using. Verse 7, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And this is what I've been focusing on is the positive ministry of the Holy Spirit. This did not say that the Holy Spirit would reprove you of sins, plural, each individual sin. I think that this is one reason that people don't really appreciate the ministry of the Holy Spirit because he's been mal lied about. He's been maligned. And most people think the Holy Spirit is the one who makes you feel guilty and condemned and gives you this sense of unworthiness and shows you every time you blow it. And they think that the Holy Spirit is just constantly nitpicking and criticizing and pointing out everything. That's not what this says. It says that He reproves you of one sin. And then verse 9 says that one sin is the sin of not believing on Jesus. And this is what I've been focusing on primarily is that all of sin has been dealt with. Jesus dealt with the sin of the entire world, saved and unsaved. Even the people who haven't accepted Jesus have had their sins paid for. Sin has been wiped out. Sin is a non-issue with God. People do not go to hell for lying and murder and thievery. They go to hell for rejecting Jesus. That's the only sin that sends a person to hell. All of their sins have been paid for. And it all just comes down now to have you made Jesus your personal Lord. That's the only sin that the Holy Spirit convicts of. And then even a Christian, the Holy Spirit will show you when you're doing something wrong, but it's not the individual actions that He deals with. He brings it all back to that you aren't trusting in Jesus. The reason you aren't giving is because you don't trust the promises that He says if you give, it'll be given unto you, that He'll give seed to the sower. So it really comes down to unbelief is what the deal is. You just aren't trusting Jesus. If you're out uh, doing dope, if you're drinking, whatever it is, it all comes down to relationship with Jesus. So the Holy Spirit isn't nailing people over their individual actions of sin. What He's doing is bringing everybody back to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is given to glorify Jesus, to point everybody to Jesus. It all revolves around Jesus. Last night I took Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10 and went through and showed that there are at least five times in Hebrews chapter 9 that the point is made that there is a difference now in the way people relate to God from the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, they had to offer a sacrifice every time they sinned. In the New Testament, Jesus entered in once. 
into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. He entered in once and obtained eternal inheritance. Since man only died once, Jesus only died once. And he is, it's done. Then in chapter 10, it re repeats the same thing. For by one offering, we have been sanctified once for all. There isn't this concept of asking your sins to be confessed and forgiven over and over and over is not a godly concept. The whole point of Hebrews 9 and 10 is that Jesus dealt with all of your sins one time, past, present, and even sins that you haven't committed yet have all been dealt with. And if you understood this, man, it would just revolutionize your relationship with God. It would allow the Holy Spirit to perform this positive ministry where He's constantly drawing you into relationship and it's all about how much God loves you instead of pointing out all of your sins and things like this. So that's what we've been talking about. Let's turn over to 1 John chapter 1 and what I want to do this morning is to answer a question. What about 1 John 1 9? I bet you there's a few of you that have been thinking of this scripture. Have any of you thought about 1 John 1 9 since I've been teaching on this? Quite a few of you. This verse says, 1 John 1 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Most people, when I teach along these lines that God has forgiven you of all sins, past, present, and future, this is a question that always come up. People say, but what about 1 John 1, 9? You have to confess your sins, and if you don't confess your sins, you won't be forgiven and you won't be cleansed. Well, let me make some statements about this. I'm going to spend a lot of this morning talking about this, but before I answer this, let me just make some points. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, verse 16, He referred to the Old Testament principle that was recorded in Deuteronomy. and There was a couple of places in the Old Testament. It says, In the mouth of two or in the mouth of three witnesses, let everything be established, but don't let any man be judged or condemned on the basis of just one scripture. And Jesus quoted that in Matthew 18, 16, saying that this is how we should interpret scripture. So let me make this point that 1 John 1, 9 is the only verse in the New Testament that I'm aware of where it tells you to confess your sins for the purpose of getting them forgiven. Now, that's a radical statement. And again, most people are more dominated by tradition than they are by the Word of God. And so most people, that's just like, how dare you say this? But I challenge you to go find these scriptures. Now, there are scriptures like James chapter 5 that says if you are sick, let call for the elders of the church, let them anoint you with oil and pray over you and the prayer of faith will save the sick. And it says confess your faults one to another. That's not talking about confessing your faults to God. That's saying that if you've wronged somebody, get rid of this, get rid of strife and reconcile is what this is talking about. There's a number of scriptures that talk about going to your brother and humbling yourself and confessing your sins and doing things like that. But you can't find other scriptures in the New Testament that talk about you confessing your sins for the purpose of getting them forgiven. That is not what the New Testament teaches. That's what's being taught in churches often. You'll hear people say that if you'd like to receive Jesus as your Savior, come down here and confess your sins. Let me ask you this. If salvation is dependent upon you confessing your sins, what happens if you miss one? Is it not covered? 
Do you have to confess every sin? Notice it didn't say if we confess our sin, singular. Talking about just the fact that you have a sin nature. This is talking about confessing your sins, plural. If, if you getting your sins forgiven is dependent upon you confessing them, what if you forget one? What if you didn't name them all? And I made this point yesterday, but first of all, you can't even tell all of your sins. We sin by uh, omission constantly. Not just commission, but omission. We fail to do what we should. We aren't even aware. Did you know that uh, you can see this in other people? Of course, none of us see it in ourselves. But other people, you can see all of their sins and how they still got these rough edges. And, and you know what? They're just blind to it. They don't even know that they're offensive to people. They just got an attitude and don't even realize it. You know what? You can't confess every single sin. So, first of all, that's impossible to live by 1 John 1, 9 if it's talking about the forgiveness of your sins and the salvation, your salvation, your right standing with God. And also, it is the only scripture, again, that talks about this. So I believe that it is inaccurate to have made such a dominant doctrine out of this as it is in the body of Christ. Just I bet you every person in here has heard this verse and basically lives by this verse that every time you sin, you have to go and confess that sin to get it forgiven. Every one of us have heard this and have been influenced by it, and it's the only time in Scripture that something like this is said. If you turn over to the 16th chapter of the book of Acts, chapter uh, verse 31, where Paul and Silas were in the Philippian jail, and they uh, called out to this jailer not to kill himself, and he came in, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They didn't say confess all of your sins, repent, get right, and maybe God will forgive you. They just said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. They didn't tell him to confess his sins. They said believe. Believe what? Believe that Jesus had already paid for their sins. See, in the New Testament... You don't get saved by confessing your sins and asking God to forgive them. You get saved by believing the good news that Jesus has already died for the sins of the whole world. And are you going to believe and receive or doubt and do without? Are you going to sit there and trust in yourself? Or are you going to humble yourself and say, I believe this good news? Yes. You know, the very fact that we, we talk about the good news, that's what the word gospel means. News is something that has already taken place. Now that's a little skewed in our world today because if you watch the news, they are prophesying. It's not news. Matter of fact, I saw on the internet today, I was getting some reports and stuff, and I looked on the internet and it had, uh, I forgot the exact wording, but it was something like 2030 could be a very bad year. 2030. And I thought, they don't have a clue what's going to happen in 2030. Somebody here's prophesying something. I didn't even look it up. Who knows? It could be that an asteroid is going to pass within 100 billion miles of Earth and they're saying maybe it could hit us. Or, you know, they're just worrying about that. And that's not news. That's prophecy. And there's a lot of stuff today where people are just saying things that aren't true. But Technically speaking, the word news, it's not news until it's already happened. And so when you say good news, we are talking about what God has already done. To tell a person that God could forgive your sins 
if you will repent and if you are contrite enough and if God chooses to, you could be saved. That's not good news. That's a lot of ifs. That's a lot of conditions in it. And all of those ifs just void the good news. But the true gospel, the true good news is that Jesus has already died for the sins of the whole world. Some people think, now how could God forgive a sin before I confessed it and repented of it? Well, you better hope that He can because He only died for sins once 2,000 years ago. And if He can't forgive sins before you commit them, then you can't be saved. Jesus died once for sins and the good news is that sins are already paid for. It is not your individual acts of sin that send any person to hell. It's just the singular sin of rejecting Jesus and not accepting His salvation. And so the New Testament does not teach that you have to come and confess your sins. The church teaches that, but the New Testament doesn't teach it. The church says, believe on the Lord Jesus and thou shalt be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you were to take the verses right in front of that, it fits perfectly. He goes back and quotes from uh, Moses. And he says, Moses prophesied that there was coming a prophet. And he says that the word isn't far away from you so that it's hard to keep it. You don't have to ascend into heaven and approach God on your own, Jesus went into heaven for us and put His blood on the mercy seat. You don't have to go into hell and pay for your own sins. Jesus went to hell and He bore our sins. So what does it say? Then He says, the word is nigh you, in your heart and in your mouth. That is the word of faith which we preach that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. This is telling you how you get saved. How do you get saved? By confessing your sins? No, you confess with your mouth Jesus as your Lord. That means you submit your life to Him. You yield to Him. And when you confess Jesus as your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, what you are doing is receiving everything that Jesus produced. You don't have to confess your sins and you don't have to ask God to save you. He's already provided it. Just reach out and take it. You know, when I was a little kid, just eight years old, this is right before I got born again. I was in uh, the Baptist church and they had a, uh, uh, what do we call it? vacation Bible school. And normally, I sat on the front row with my family. We were like skunks. We had our own pew. I mean... This, is, this was the Womack's pew. The Womack's always sat right there. So normally I was right here on the front row, but because I was in vacation Bible school, they marched us in according to groups, and there were 600 kids. And I was, I mean, it was a room just about this, this size, and I was all the way on the back row. And this guy stood up, and he, he held up a dollar bill. And he said, I'll give this dollar bill to the first kid that comes up here and takes it. And boy, instantly there was 20 or 30 kids around him just jumping up and down saying, I want, I want it, I want it. And I thought of all the times to be sitting on the back row. What, a, what bad timing. And this guy just ignored him. He just kept his arm up like this. And he said, I'll give this dollar bill to the first kid that comes up here and takes it. And everybody was wondering, what's he doing? All of these kids were up there. And he just kept saying this and kept saying this. And finally, it dawned on my lightning fast mind what he was saying. And I jumped out, ran down that aisle, and I ran and pushed my way through all those kids. And he had his arm up like this. And I reached up and grabbed his arm and climbed up and grabbed that dollar bill out of his hand. 
And he turned around and he says, now that is the first kid that came up here and took it. He said, every one of you wanted it and you were asking for it, but you didn't take it. And he used that to illustrate how salvation is. Salvation, you don't go and say, oh God, would you please save me? And you don't beg and plead. It's already been provided. Jesus has already provided it. He's died. Now, will you believe, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, then you reach out and take it. You reach out and receive salvation. See, that's what the New Testament teaches. This whole concept of that you have to come and ask God to forgive you of your sins and confess every sins, that's what the church is basically teaching, but that is not the message that the Bible teaches. And I could go through and just show you every time. Go to the book of Acts, chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came. I'm not going to take time to go through there, but he didn't say, ask God to forgive you of your sins. Now, he did tell the people to repent and turn. There still is a place for repentance, but you just repent and turn towards God, and then you believe and receive. You don't have to ask and then wait to see, will God answer your prayer? He's already provided it. It's already done. You just reach out and receive it. So I say all of these things to put this into context. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 is really different than the way that the Bible teaches to receive salvation. And it is completely impossible to administer if you believe that if you don't confess your sins, then they don't get forgiven. If I really believe that, if I really believe that you had to confess every sin, I think I've already said this this week, but if I believe that, then as soon as you got born again, I'd just kill you. That's about the only way you'd ever make it to heaven is just to have somebody kill you right then before you have time to mess it up and commit some sin and then forget to mention it or confess it and stuff. You'd never make it. It would be doing you a service to kill you the moment you get born again. So that is not what this is talking about. Here's what 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 is talking about. First of all, let me just go through this first chapter. The book of 1 John is one of the last books written in the New Testament. And the reason, one of the main reasons that it was written was the Apostle John. He lived, according to tradition, to be 100 years old. He was boiled in oil and survived. It didn't bother him. And so they finally had to exile him to the Isle of Patmos. And that's where he wrote this vision of the revelation of Jesus. And John was one of the oldest living, longest living apostles. And in his days, these people called the Gnostics had come up. The word Gnostic has to do with mind. It's talking about mental. These were people who claimed to have a superior brain to everybody else is the reason they were called Gnostics. Uh, they would equate to what we call Scientology today. or, or um, I think that's what they call it, is Scientology. Uh, they claimed that there was a lot of things that they claimed, but one of them was that Jesus never came in the flesh, that Jesus wasn't really flesh and blood. He was just an apparition. It was like a spirit, and God made it look like that He had become flesh. And this was their answer to the impossibility of how could God be in more than one place at one time. And they didn't believe in the Trinity. And so they believed that Jesus was just like a spirit that was made to look like he was here, but he wasn't really here. And that's the reason that in 1 John uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5 that John came along and says, anybody 
who confesses that Jesus did not come in the flesh is not of God. That's how you tell a cult whether they believe that Jesus is truly the Son of God. And he hit this really hard. And he started this first chapter. It says in verse 1, it says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. The reason for him making this point is, he says, I know Jesus was real. I saw him. I heard him. I touched him. He was real. He was countering these Gnostics who were claiming that Jesus was just some kind of a spirit and that he never was in the flesh. So that's how he started countering these people. In verse 2 he says, For the life was manifested. And again, the emphasis here, the word manifest means to make evident to the physical senses. This life wasn't just spiritual. It wasn't just some kind of an apparition. This was physical. It was tangible. It was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that you may also have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we had heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Light here is symbolizing everything good, everything godly. God is the source of all of this good. Same thing said over in James chapter 1 and other places. This was another doctrine of the Gnostics was that they believed that since they had this superior revelation, they basically preached that you could go live in sin, that you could do anything. It didn't matter what you did. Uh, because none of these things really mattered. God didn't, uh, it didn't matter. And so you find a lot of 1 John is talking about these people who profess that they know God and yet don't have a life that is consistent with light. If their life is consistent with darkness, then just recognize that they're liars. They aren't telling you the truth. A person who says they're in fellowship with God and is acting like the devil is lying. That's really simple. These are things you wouldn't really think you'd have to say, but John was having to say it, and you know what? We need to say it today because there's people who think that they're just fine with God, and yet they're into all kinds of weirdness. You know, you have... Um, well, I'm not going to get specific. I'll get off the subject. So anyway, verse 5 says, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Now there's a difference between relationship and fellowship. This isn't talking about whether or not you're born again, but it's saying that a person who says that they're in communion with God, they're in relationship, they're enjoying fellowship with God, and yet they're angry and they're bitter and they're operating in strife and they're operating in immorality and not serving God. They can say whatever they want to. I'm not questioning that you could be born again and still sin. And these verses right here make this point clear that Christians still sin. So I'm not saying that you couldn't be born again, but for you to sit there and say that, oh, you're in fellowship with God and yet you're living like the devil, you're lying. That's, that's not really that hard. That's just all that he's saying. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What does walking in the light mean? 
Well, first of all, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you're sinless and that you aren't making any mistakes because in this very verse it says, if you are walking in the light, then the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all sin. So walking in the light doesn't mean that you don't have sin. It doesn't mean that you aren't failing. Walking in the light just means that you know that Jesus is Lord. You have submitted yourself unto Him. You are seeking Him. But even if you, as you seek the Lord, there's going to be times that you have a flesh flash. Somebody's going to push your hot button. Somebody's going to cut you off in traffic and you're going to say something that isn't godly. Amen. You're going to criticize other people. You know, this is what fallen human beings do. Even born again, saved fallen human beings are in, in, uh, unholy. We don't do everything perfect. We don't always love and do everything exactly the way that we should. So walking in the light doesn't mean that you are sinless or you wouldn't have any need for the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse you from all of your sins because you'd be sinless. No, walking in the light, you can still miss it. You can still sin. But if you are walking in the light, if you are fellowshipping with God and seeking God, then you know what those sins that we do by mistake, the sins of omission, the failures that we do, our carnality and things like this, the blood of Jesus Christ is just constantly cleansing us from all of this defilement that we have just because of the weakness of our flesh. Man, that's, that's good news. In other words, this is something that if you are walking in the light that you have, then when you're missing it, not because you are just out here totally rebelling at God, but just because you're human and you're failing and you aren't loving people and you aren't as kind as you should be, the blood of Jesus Christ is just constantly cleansing you. You know, Fritz Reinecker's uh, Dictionary of Linguistic Words in the New Testament, he goes through every one of these words. And this word where it means that he cleanses us, it's talking about a present active uh, tense thing. It's something that is constant. It's all of the time. It's just constantly flowing in your life. The blood of Jesus Christ is constantly cleansing you from all sin. In verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. For those of you who believe that you can become so sanctified that you can't sin, you deceive yourself. You aren't deceiving me, you're deceiving yourself, amen. I guarantee you there is no such thing as reaching sanctification to where you cannot sin. And the people who believe that get mad at me and sin. It's real easy. It's real easy to prove somebody they aren't sanctified in that sense. It just... Start, start taking some of the things that I'm saying and play it for those sanctified people and boy, they'll get mad, amen. You can prove that they haven't reached there yet. Then in verse 9 it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Again, based on everything I was teaching last night in so many scriptures, that to me are very clear that Jesus entered in once and obtained eternal redemption, eternal forgiveness of sins. You've been sanctified, perfected forever. Those scriptures are so clear that this one verse cannot be undoing them. I believe that what this is talking about, your spirit is the part of you that got born again, sanctified and perfected forever. I used those verses last night out of uh, Hebrews chapter 9, chapter 10, verses 10, 
uh, and 14, and then Hebrews 12, 22, and 23, it says that it's our spirit that has been made perfect. Your spirit is the part that is born again. And then Ephesians 1.13 says, Once you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit vacuum packs your born-again spirit. Uh, Ephesians 4.24 says that spirit was created in righteousness and true holiness. And so your spirit is righteous and then immediately sealed. If you sin as a Christian, sin enters into your physical body where it gives Satan an inroad against you physically. It enters into your soulish realm, into your mind and emotions where it gives Satan an inroad against you in your emotions and in your thinking and things like this. But that sin can't penetrate the seal that's around your spirit. Your spirit has been sanctified and perfected forever. And God is a spirit, John 4, 24. And He sees you in the spirit and relates to you based on the spirit. Therefore, even though Christians still sin, and the verse before and after, Roman, uh, 1 John 1, 9, talks about if you say that you haven't sinned, you're a liar, you're deceived, the truth isn't in you. Chapter 2 says, My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. But if any man sins. So the very context of this makes it clear that Christians can sin. But when, that, when you sin, that sin doesn't penetrate into your spirit. It doesn't change your righteous, born-again nature. You still are born again. But it gives Satan a direct inroad into your physical body. Look at this verse in Romans chapter 6 and in verse 16. It says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Well, that verse is a powerful verse. It says that if you obey sin, then you have yielded yourself to Satan, the author of that sin. And I can guarantee you Satan is out to destroy you. It says in John chapter 10, Jesus was speaking and he said, the thief comes for no other purpose except to steal, kill, and to destroy. But I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Jesus came to give us life, but Satan is out to steal, kill, and destroy. So if you yield the sin, that doesn't affect your spirit. Your spirit has been born again, sanctified, and perfected forever. It's sealed that sin, the corruption, does not enter into your spirit and affect your spirit. And as far as your personal relationship with God, you are still in right relationship with God even though you go out and sin and give Satan an inroad into your life. Now, boy, that is an important piece of information. Because every person in here, I was talking to one man this morning who's done some things that he feels condemned over and he knows intellectually that God isn't going to deal with him based on his sins, but his own conscience is condemning him. And he was struggling. And you could tell that he was just feeling unworthy and that he doesn't deserve to be healed. Man, what a great relief it is to know that God is a spirit and God is looking at you in the spirit. And in the spirit, there is no sin that separates. It's just as if you had never sinned. That's what the word justified means. Just as if I'd never sinned. Man, you are justified. In your spirit, you're clean. God looks at you and sees you as righteous and holy and pure as Jesus. But does that mean that it's okay to just go live in sin? No, every time you live in sin, 
You give Satan an inroad into your life. It's like swinging a door open wide and just saying, Satan, shoot your best shot. Come in and bother me. Come give me sickness. Come destroy me. Come condemn me. Come bring confusion into my life. Do everything you can to destroy me. That's just stupid. That is stupid to the max. I am not encouraging sin, but I'm saying that if you have sin, God still loves you, stupid. Amen? God's love isn't based on your actions. If you're born again, He's only dealing with you over one sin, and that's the sin of not accepting Jesus. If you've accepted Jesus, then you are the righteousness of God, and God sees you in Christ, and you are forgiven, and you are cleansed. But it's absolutely stupid to just give Satan free access to you and let him come in and bring sickness and disease and poverty and confusion and bitterness and hurt and pain, depression. How dumb can you get and still breathe? Why would anybody want to go live in sin? But what happens if you do live in sin? And again, the verse in front and behind, 1 John 1, 9 says, If you say that you haven't sinned, you've deceived your own self. You're a liar and the truth isn't in you. All of us sin. All of us come short. Man, we do things that are inconsistent with Jesus. Sin is just basically not being like Jesus. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. People that think that they don't sin are comparing themselves among other people and stuff. You haven't seen God's holy standard. When you look at what God made every one of us to be, every one of us is so far short of what God wanted us to be. There's not a one of us in here that is as loving, as kind, as generous, as compassionate as what God intended us to be. We're all sinning and coming short. What happens when you sin and give Satan this inroad into your life? Are you just doomed? I mean, your spirit is still sealed and you're in right relationship, but does that mean that, man, Satan's just got access to you and there's zero way to escape? What do you do when you've given place to the devil? That's what 1 John 1, 9 is for. You confess it. The word confess, it, in this instance, if you look it up, it just means to agree. In other words, you were doing things your own way. Somebody said something and you didn't like it and you just vented and told them all of this stuff, hurt their feelings, dumped on them, totally self-centered. You thought, man, I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. You know what? You hadn't got enough mind to share with anybody, amen. You don't need to be giving anybody a piece of your mind. But you just thought, well, I'm going to tell them. And so you vent and you hurt somebody. What happens when you realize, God, I was just wrong? What do you do? How do you turn that around and keep Satan from eating your lunch and popping the bag? How do you stop that? Well, you just confess, Father, I was absolutely wrong. You were right. Turning the other cheek is superior. I didn't turn the other cheek. I slapped their other cheek. God, I was wrong and you were right. I confess it and I just turned from this. And when you, see, you, you turned away from what God was leading you to do and you got into the flesh. You submitted to the devil over here and did your own thing. And by doing so, you just gave Satan freedom in your life to come and destroy and have inroad into your life. How do you stop that? You just turn around and say, oh God, I'm sorry. I was not consistent with what you did. I am now agreeing with you. I'm going to confess. I'm going to agree that you were right. I was wrong. And by doing that, you shut that door on the devil and the forgiveness 
And the cleansing that's already a reality forever in your spirit is now released out into your physical realm, into the soulish realm. It drives out this legal access that Satan had to you and it stops him. This isn't talking about your eternal forgiveness. It isn't talking about your spirit salvation. It's not talking about your personal relationship with God. If it was, well then again, it would put everything back on your shoulders to make sure that you have every sin confessed, which is an absolute impossibility. It's impossible for you to recognize every physical sin that you commit and confess it. But see, if you are walking in the light as He is in the light, well then the things that you do that are just carnal and failures of human beings and you're falling short, the blood of Jesus Christ just automatically cleanses you from all of that and keeps Satan off of your back. When you intentionally do something wrong and you come to realize that I've just totally blown it and you realize it, well then you need to confess that. Not for the purpose of getting your eternal spirit born again and forgiven and cleansed because it's been sanctified and cleansed forever. But you need to get that inroad that you gave Satan into your life. You need to close that door and get him out and stop that. You know, I remember not long after Jamie and I got married, you know, we were just goofing around like young married people do. And I was chasing her through this apartment and playing and we were doing things and I backed her into a doorknob and she had a doorknob with her rear and it hurt her. And so she fell down and I tripped over and landed on top of her and broke her foot. (laughs) I broke her toe. And so I immediately grabbed her toe and I started to pray for it and she says, you can't pray for it until you ask forgiveness (laughs) for breaking my foot. So I had to ask God forgiveness and then I prayed and we got her foot healed. Amen. But you know, there's a principle here and that is it like, say for instance, if you were doing something stupid, if you go out and just, you know, if you go for two or three days without sleep because you're, I don't know, I heard, I heard about some guy who was playing video games for three days over, it seems like this was in China or someplace, but he played video games. It was some kind of a marathon thing and he died. Playing video games. He just got himself so worn out he had a heart attack or something. You know, if you were to stay up playing video games or stay up watching uh, football and do something to damage your body, and if you, if you damage your body and then you get sick, I believe that you ought to say, God, forgive me for not using wisdom. God, forgive me for submitting myself to the devil. Not in forgiveness in the sense that it's going to affect your salvation and relationship with God, but you gave Satan a direct inroad into your life. You know, I just have a very fresh memory of this. <laughs> Amen. Just two weeks ago, I ministered 40 times in one week. And I did a bunch of other stuff, and I just, I just wasted myself. And I, I couldn't get out of bed. I had to stay in bed for two or three days, and I was just tired. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to recover from this. I had to cancel all of my Bible school stuff and stay in bed. And I got up too quick and went and got a load of wood and loaded up an entire pickup load of wood and stacked it and wiped myself out. And then I got this sinus pressure and my eyes swelled shut. And I mean, I just got sick. First time in 36 years I've been sick. But you know the way I had to deal with it? The first thing I did is say, God, I'm sorry. I brought this on myself. I can't even blame the devil for this. 
I did it to myself. And I asked forgiveness. And, I, and not in the sense that God, I know that you won't love me now. No, He's a spirit and He sees me in the spirit. But I gave Satan this inroad into my life. And so I had to repent of it and confess, confess it uh, to just say that, God, I'm not taking care of my body. I'm not living right. And I had to repent of it before I started believing and releasing my faith to be healed of that thing. Amen? So if you do something in the physical, like say, for instance, you just get mad and you blast somebody and you're in strife and then you're going to go to believing for something, you know what? Your conscience, not necessarily the Holy Spirit, but your conscience is going to smite you and begin to start condemning you. And the way I deal with that condemnation is to just say, Father, I was wrong. I, I confess it. I agree with God. I say the same thing. God, I was wrong. I'm sorry. And I know that this hasn't affected my eternal relationship with you. I know I still have rights and privileges. I'm still the righteousness of God. But I have given Satan inroad into my life and I'm not going to live this way. Satan, I renounce you. I turn from this. I turn from that and I turn back to God and I shut that door and now my conscience is cleansed and purged. I believe 1 John 1, 9 is talking about cleansing your conscience. How to get the inroad that you have allowed Satan into your flesh, how to close the door and how to stop that. It does not have anything to do with your eternal redemption. Boy, that is good, that is good news. And if you understand this, it changes everything. It changes everything. Boy, that is powerful. But this is not the way that the vast majority of people view their relationship with God. They think that every time they sin, it's something brand new that God has to deal with and get over. And you have to suffer for a period of time until you've done due penance. You know, my sister is nine years older than I am and she's a godly woman. She's seen a person raised from the dead in the back seat of her car. And she operates in the power of God. But she has a daughter that is now like 40 years old. But when she was a teenager at home, this daughter just was so rebellious. I mean, she could make a saint cuss. <laughs> she was vicious. And uh, anyway, my sister was fixing um, supper one time for her husband. He was a professor at the university and he was bringing home another professor. And so she was in the midst of fixing supper and she had guests coming and all of this. And my niece got in there and just got to ragging on her and pushing her hot buttons and doing things. And anyway, Joyce, she should have known better. She just turned around and decked Lee. Knocked her flat of her back in the kitchen. And when that happened, Joyce just was devastated. Just devastated. She ran upstairs, threw herself across the bed, and she said, Oh, God, what can I do? She said, I've got company coming. I've got to finish supper, and if I start crying, I won't come out of here until in the morning. She says, You've got to give me a word. I can't believe I did something like this. And basically, here's what the Lord spoke to her. He said, Joyce, when you were eight years old and you received my salvation and got born again, I already dealt with this sin. It's already taken care of. I'm not upset. I'm not offended. You can go back down and finish supper. And you know what? It just set her free from that. It didn't set her free to go down and slap her daughter again because after all, God had already forgiven. 
No, that's not what she did. She went down and asked Lee for forgiveness and said, I'm sorry, and she humbled herself. But see, there's some of you that honestly, if you were to do something like that, you wouldn't be able to feel God's pleasure for a week or two or whatever your predetermined set of penance is. And it would not be based on what Jesus did for you. It would be based on how much you grovel in the dirt and how long you feel unworthy. And you would have set some boundary and you just wouldn't believe that God could answer your prayers or bless you until you've suffered enough to justify being back in God's sight. Amen or oh me. You know, that's no different than the people. Like I met a man one time who came and showed me his hands and his elbows and his knees and they were scarred because he was in the Catholic church and he had crawled three miles over broken glass to do penance for his sin. He had a friend of his that actually got crucified and died. And what they were trying to do was show their repentance and remorse. Now, see, those are extreme examples, and most of us hear stuff like that and say, well, that's an offense to the Lord. You're saying that you have to suffer. You aren't accepting what Jesus suffered. You think you have to suffer and somehow or another do penance for your own sins. Well, I agree that that's absolutely wrong, but did you know that this feeling that I've done something wrong and I can't be back, I can't have God love me and I can't enjoy the presence of God for at least a week or a month or a year until I suffer enough to equal penance for my sin, that's the exact same thing, just to a lesser degree. Lenten season where you have to suffer is dishonoring Jesus. It's not what Jesus did for you, it's how you suffer and do all of these things. We got so much religious tradition that is voiding and negating the sacrifice of Jesus. I'm telling you, it's not about what you do for Jesus. It's about what He's done for you. Amen. He's already provided everything for you. And it's just a matter of you humbling yourself and receiving. You know, this is very offensive to people who believe that there's something they can do to make themselves better in the sight of God. Those who believe that by studying the Word and praying and going to church and doing, uh, you know, doing all of these things, it somehow or another makes you more holy and God is more accepted. You are more accepted with God because you've done this. What I'm saying here is very offensive because it's taking away all of your self-righteousness. It's meaning that all of your goodness doesn't give you a leg up on anybody else. Here's another way of saying this. I'm saying this in love. You may not perceive it that way, but I'm just trying to get my point across. Pharisees always hate grace because it means that all of your great godliness doesn't make you any better than anybody else. And we got lots of Pharisees today that have been taught to trust and rely on what you have done instead of what's been done for you. And this is offensive to people when I say things like this because you're... You're saying that that doesn't make me better than this old drunk over here? Absolutely. Now, there are benefits to living a holy life. Like, I have not. I've never said a word of profanity in all of my life. I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never tasted coffee. Some of you are thinking, coffee? 
Are you saying that coffee and booze are the same thing? No, you got a scripture to stand on for drinking coffee. It says you can drink any deadly thing and it shall not harm you, amen. I'm just saying I have lived a super, super, super holy life. Does that make me so that I needed less grace than anybody else? No, I needed just as much grace. I needed just as much salvation. There isn't a hell number two or hell number three. If you miss heaven by an inch, you miss it by a mile. I had sinned and come short of the glory of God and I needed a savior. So I needed just as much salvation as anybody else. I, if, if I've lived holier than you, that doesn't mean that God was closer to me and it took less effort on his part to save me than it did you. No, it's all the same. But you know what? There are benefits. I don't have some of the memories that some of you all have. I don't have uh, some of the inroads into Satan's, Satan into my life. I haven't had some of the physical things that some of you all have had. I haven't defiled myself. I don't have some of the associations. You know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of benefits to living a holy life. I don't even have to deal with some of the thoughts that other people deal with. So I would suggest living a holy life. But I'm going to tell you that regardless of how holy you live... You aren't going to be perfect. And who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? You need a Savior. Live as holy as you can to stop Satan's inroad into your life so that you don't have to deal with as much stuff. But you are still going to have to stand strong in the grace that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't stand before God and say, God, you owe it to me because I'm holy. You know, when my son died, I didn't go to God and say, God, I've been serving you and I'm preaching the gospel and I've lived holy and I've done these things. You've got to move in my son's life. I didn't approach God on the basis of what I've done. If I had, my son would be dead today. But you know what I did? I started praising him and saying, Father, you're a good God. You didn't do this. It is not your fault. And God just sparked faith in my life. And I claimed and stood on my son being raised from the dead, not on based on my goodness, but just the fact that Jesus is a good God. And he had purposes. He prophesied over this boy things that hadn't come to pass. And I knew he had to come back to life. And he was raised from the dead after being dead for five hours, not because I deserved it, but because I had a Savior that I put faith in. And it helped that my conscience wasn't sitting there saying, Oh man, you've been living in adultery and you've gone out and stolen and you've lied and you've done this. If I had been living like that, I believe that that conscience would have been such a factor that it would have stopped my faith from working. So it's important not to have a defiled conscience. But nobody's going to have a perfect conscience. You still have to use the blood of the Lord Jesus to purify it. Look at this verse over in First. Timothy chapter 1, verse 19. It's either 1st or 2nd Timothy chapter 1. I can find it quickly. I think it's 1st Timothy chapter 1 and verse 19. Or let's go back to verse 18. It says, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. How do you fight a good fight? How do you war a good warfare? You hold faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. 
to really fight a good fight, you have to have faith, but also a good conscience. Your conscience is the part of you that knows right from wrong and that is constantly accusing or else excusing yourself. Romans chapter 2 says that. Your conscience is the part of you that knows whether you've been seeking God and whether you haven't. And this says that when you are fighting a good fight, you have to hold faith and a good conscience. If your conscience is condemning you, then you know what? It is going to make your faith shipwreck. That's what this says. Shipwreck doesn't mean that it never left dock, that it never went anywhere. No, it was in process. It just didn't arrive at the right place. It wrecked before it got there. There's a lot of people who have faith in God and are believing God and they can see some results, but their own heart is condemning them. Their own conscience is condemning them because of what they've done and it makes their faith shipwreck. It doesn't mean that their faith wasn't working. It was working. It just didn't reach the desired end because their own heart condemned them. You know, if anybody takes what I'm saying and say, well, Andrew is just encouraging sin. You're just lying. You're a liar. And the truth isn't in you. I'm going out of my way to tell you that, man, I live a holy life. You know, the best that I can, I, I seek God. I am not out here indulging my flesh. But I don't do it perfectly. And so I have to stand there and cleanse my conscience by the blood of Jesus and stand and recognize who I am. But I am not encouraging sin. I'm telling you that if you are out there taking the things that I'm saying about the grace of God and saying, boy, this is an opportunity for me to go live in sin. Well, if you were truly born again, which I would doubt if you're truly born again if you respond that way because that's not a Christian response. But if you were truly born again and somehow or another just took grace as an opportunity to go live in sin, then you could still be righteous in your spirit, have your spirit sealed with the Holy Spirit. That sin isn't penetrating your spirit. And so you could still be in right standing with God. But boy, Satan is going to come into your life and he will have legal rights to operate and oppress you because you have given him that place. You have become his servant. You have let him have mastery over you. And then when you do try and operate in faith and say, well, Andrew says it's based on grace, it's not what I do, even though that's absolutely true, your own conscience is going to be there condemning you and it's going to make your faith shipwrecked. The scripture says in Hebrews chapter 12, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. You have to lay aside things. It's like a runner. If you're going to win that race, you can't run with training weights on. You can't run carrying all of this stuff. Man, you need to strip down, get rid of all of this extra weight if you want to win. If you want to win in life, if you want to see your son raised from the dead, if you want to see the power of God operating in you, and if you want to experience victory, then you need to live a holy way so that you don't allow your conscience to condemn you. Now, you can't do it perfectly. I still do things wrong. And so even though I'm forgiven, my conscience, it doesn't understand forgiven. It just says, you're right, you're wrong. And when I do things wrong, my conscience goes to condemning me. And so I have to sprinkle my heart from an evil conscience. And I have to wash my conscience by the water of the Word. 
and I have to purge it with these truths and I have to stand against it. But, man, I just, you know, 90% or more of the condemnation that comes through your conscience can be avoided by not living an ungodly life. <laughs> Don't violate your conscience. Paul said, I exercise myself always to have a conscience void of offense. And when he said that, the high priest had somebody walk up and slap him. How dare you say such? But you know what? You can do that. You can live in a way that you don't violate your conscience. You don't sit there and void your conscience. You don't feel the leading of God to do one thing and you do another. And if you're living a life contrary like that, then you know what? You're, it's like I said, you're just stupid. But God loves you, stupid. And if you would really understand how much God loves you in spite of the stupid way that we act, then I believe that that love would inspire you to start laying aside these sins and to start living for God and living holy. But this is a totally different approach. You aren't living holy in order to have God love you. You live holy as a byproduct of understanding how much God loves you. It's the love of Christ that constrains you to live holy. It's not fear that constrains you to live holy. But no, it's because you understand God loves you so much. We have such a great salvation that you just give up and you live for God with everything that you've got. You know, it is absolutely my all-consuming desire to live for God. I don't do it perfectly. I don't do everything right. But man, that is my desire. That's my desire. And when I mess up, it bothers me. I don't like it. But it is so comforting to know that God isn't mad at me and that this isn't something new that has hurt our relationship. If you think that that's the way it is, you know, after you've hurt the Lord a thousand times since you've been born again, <laughs> promising you'd never do it again, and you're still making mistakes, after a while... You just think, well, he may not send me to hell, but he couldn't love me. I don't love myself. But man, it changes everything to understand God's a spirit. God's looking at you and in the spirit and in the spirit, you are totally his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. You are righteous and holy and pure because of what he did. And that's the way that God sees you. When you come before God saying, oh God, I'm so unworthy. Oh God, I failed you so badly. You're either in the flesh, which cannot please God, or if you would just come and say, in the name of Jesus, and approach Him in the Spirit, God looks at you and says, perfect. He doesn't see you the way you see yourself. He's not looking on the outward appearance. God sees you a new person. And the Holy Spirit is always there to just tell you, you've accepted Jesus. You've made Jesus your Lord. Man, He's pleased with you. That's the only thing that really matters. He's forgiven all sins. If you've accepted Jesus and made Jesus your Lord, God loves you. He loves you because you love His Son. He's pleased with you because you chose Jesus. And man, God is pleased with you. God loves you. The Holy Spirit is there to encourage you and build you up, not put you down. Boy, that's good news. That is great news. That's what God has done for every one of us. And we just haven't fully received it. I pray that these things that I've been sharing are helping you to understand some things from a different standpoint. And I believe it'll make a difference. Amen. You know, I've read a number of emails lately, comments, 
of people just saying that, man, this is causing them to fall in love with God. People are talking about how this is setting them free. This doesn't make people want to go live in sin. What I've talked about this morning shouldn't encourage anybody to go live in sin. I don't even relate to that. People that say I'm preaching and encouraging sin are just out and out lying. That is not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that God loves me in spite of who I am, not because of who I am. He loves me because of what Jesus did, not because of what I do. Amen. Good news. Amen. Hallelujah. Father, we love you and we are just so grateful for what you've done in our lives. Thank you, Father, for such a great salvation. Father, thank you that you forgave every person's sins, even those who haven't asked for sin, even those who will never ask for forgiveness of sin. Father, thank you that you forgave their sins. Thank you that you made the provision for every person just as if they were going to receive. Thank you, Father, for your goodness that you made provision for every person. Thank you that nobody will ever stand before you and point their finger at you and say you were unjust. Father, you've been better to all of us than any of us deserve. Father, thank you for such great salvation. I pray that the Holy Spirit is freed through these things that I've been sharing to have his positive ministry and to build us up, to show us how much you love us, that we are righteous and that we are the ones in a position of authority. That, Father, you've blessed us. I pray that the Holy Spirit is building people up, that guilt and condemnation and shame is leaving. Father, for any person in here who has been yielding themselves to Satan, and they know it, they are violating their own conscience, they know that they're doing wrong, they're harboring unforgiveness, bitterness, whatever. Father, I pray that today they'd understand this and repent of that, turn from it. And agree, confess, say the same thing that you say so that they can shut a door on the devil so that Satan will no longer have legal access to them, the right to dominate them. Father, I just thank you that you help people to turn from this sin. But Father, we thank you that it is not our holiness that grants us relationship with you. It's what Jesus did. We receive this today. Thank you, Father, for our forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus. We agree and we receive that in the name of the Lord. Amen. Let me ask today if there's anybody here who needs to be born again. Again, I've been talking to We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs 80934. Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.